Welcome to Let It Be Easy with Susie Moore. When Laurie Gottlieb said yes to an interview for the Let It Be Easy podcast, I was so excited because I discovered her work years ago, back when I had a corporate job. I was still in my 20s. I loved that book, Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. I remember reading about it in the media and discovering her, and I loved the book, and I shared it with a lot of my friends. And since then, Laurie's done so many incredible things. Her most recent book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. It sold over a million copies. It's a New York Times best-selling book, and it's currently even being adapted as a TV series. Laurie is this incredible psychotherapist who has her own clinical practice. She's also the host of the very popular Dear Therapist podcasts which is produced by Katie Couric, and she also writes a column for The Atlantic called Dear Therapist. I loved accessing this woman's brain, understanding how and why she does the work she does, and I loved, maybe you should talk to someone so much, because it's about her going to a therapist and the journey of a therapist receiving treatment, and of course, the stories of four of her own patients with very, very different, wide and varied stories. Truly, this conversation with Laurie is one I will always remember, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Laurie Gottlieb. (laughs) What a joy. Your name, your books have been in my home on my iPad for so long. And your book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is life-changing. Like, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, well, thank you so much for saying that. And I'm so glad to be here and be able to talk with you today. Can I just say that, you know, when I first started your book, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I thought it might be something prescriptive, like maybe you should talk to someone, signs, you should talk to someone, and it's all in there. But I've never seen a book like this where it's you as a therapist, of course, sharing stories of your own patients who have incredibly different stories and backgrounds, and then you seeking out your own therapist and the very open, honest. I mean, I just kept thinking, wow, like Lori's so courageous with everything that she's sharing in this book. And that is so generous. Was that your intention kind of coming into this, creating this work? Because I feel like you're not holding back. You're just sharing. Right. Well, the funny thing about that is I wasn't as courageous as you might have thought, because as you know from maybe you should talk to someone in the book, I describe how I was supposed to be writing a book about happiness. Yes. And the happiness book was making me miserable. And the <laughs> irony of that was not lost on me. I was like getting depressed trying to write a book about happiness mm-hmm. um, because it just felt so meaningless to me. It, you know, I feel like happiness as a byproduct of living our lives with meaning and purpose is what we all aspire to. But happiness as the goal ends up being sort of a recipe for disaster. And so, you know, I think we all want joy in our lives and we all want meaning and purpose and connection. And those are the things that that give us that feeling of, yes, I'm living my life in the way I want to live it. And so um, I wanted to just bring people into the therapy room instead of writing all these studies about happiness. Mm-hmm. And I said to my publisher, that's what I'm going to do. I canceled the happiness book. And everyone said, oh, no one's going to read that book. No one's going to read this book about like people talking in a room. And that's not what the book is about. I mean, it's a, it's not even really a book about therapy. It's a book about the human condition. Mm-hmm. And so in the book, I follow the lives of these four very different patients, as you said. And then I'm the fifth patient as I go to my own therapy after I go through this 
unexpected breakup. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it becomes this thing where, you know, we're sort of, you get to see the human condition from, from both sides. And I felt like since no one was going to read the book, I would just be as vulnerable as my patients were because I, I thought it was really important. I say at the beginning of the book that my greatest credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race, mm-hmm. that I know what it's like to be a person in the world, which means I know what it's like to struggle because if you're a person in the world, you have struggled in ways big or small. and so. I just wrote what I wanted to write for the three people that they said would read it. And, <laughs> and of course now, by the way, it's sold over a million copies. It's I know, congratulations. You know, lots of people have read it. And I think that the reason that so many people have read it is because I didn't clean myself up. And there was a moment when I turned in the book to my publisher and they said, wow, I laughed, I cried, I gave it to five people, I talked about it with everybody. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, like, people are going to read like, Wait a minute, I thought three people were going to read this and that, that's why I was so open. Um, and and then, you know, I thought, well, okay, well, maybe like 3,000 people will read this and I'll have to deal with that. And of course, now, you know, that we've got, you know, so many people reading it, um, I really feel like it resonated because it was so authentic. Mm. And I mean, amen that that's how it began, because who knows if you could have just been so... Like self-conscious about it. Yes. I mean, I I feel so much like how genuine your emotions are, what you share, even the title itself. I mean, when a friend suggests, and what I found so interesting too, is like the therapy circles that you're in and how there's confidentiality. If you want to seek out a therapist, you have to kind of say it's for a friend. And could people, could there be like some crossovers with therapy and all the rules around it? It's so fascinating. Um, But how you also shared that it was a friend who said to you, maybe you should talk to someone. Yeah. It was actually a a friend who happens to be a therapist too. And, and, and I think that that's important because I think that I was feeling like, well, you know, I'll get through this. Mm -hmm. It's okay. And, and, you know, I was not getting through it. I mean, you can see in the book and that's where the parts where I had, you know, at some point thought, oh no, maybe I should clean myself up. I was very real about the struggle I was going through to adjust to this new reality. Mm-hmm. And, and also then the minimizing that we do, that we have this almost hierarchy of pain mm-hmm. that, you know, oh, it's a breakup, but not a divorce. Um, you know, someone will say, oh, it's a miscarriage, but I didn't lose my eight-year-old child or mm-hmm. it's this, but it's not that. Or yeah, maybe I'm sad or anxious, but I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So it's really not that bad. You know, we, we kind of talk ourselves out of what we're experiencing because we think there's some hierarchy of pain and there's not pain is pain. And so I was sort of thinking, well, it's not that bad. How, you know, I'll, I'll get over it. And I was definitely not functioning well. <laughs> and, um, and, and I talk about all of that in great detail in the book. And then, you know, my friend said, well, maybe you should talk to someone. And, and of course, um, that was instrumental in moving things forward. What great advice. And here we are with a book later about it. I mean, truly, I mean, what I love is how you share the story about you know a breakup after a couple of years, it was very out of left field, right? Very, very unexpected. And when you went to find your own therapist, uh, the part of the book that I found so fascinating and honest and reflective is uh, because it was such a shock. You speak about the shock of the breakup and, you know, Wendell in the book, as he's called, I know you protect everybody's um, identity in this book, which is also um, cool, but you shared that he, 
he was an avoidant using this term avoidant, which is, I think a lot of us understand what that means in a relationship to be an avoidant. And your, your therapist, Wendell, helped you understand that those qualities were in you too. And yes, yes. This is the part that we don't like to look at. So, you know, in the book, I talk about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion and Mm -hmm. idiot compassion is what our friends do. So when the breakup happened, of course, your friends, they agree with you. Like, yeah, he's a jerk. How how could, how could he do this? What's wrong with him? He's a sociopath. How Mm -hmm. could he not tell you this? Um, and, and, you know, cause he, he had said, uh, he'd given a reason for the breakup that, that I had to kind of get out of him. And, yes. and, and my friends were just, you know, completely backing me up and they would send me little emojis of like, he's trash. And then send like a little trash emoji. <laughs> and, and it makes You're you friends. feel really good. <laughs> Yeah. But, but then, but then you go to a therapist and they don't offer idiot compassion. And by the way, with idiot mm-hmm. compassion, it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. So if you mm-hmm. see your friend's patterns over time, you might see, oh yeah, they're complaining about this thing again, maybe with a different person, but it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A therapist will offer wise compassion. That means that we will hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. And the word compassion is in there for a reason. It's very compassionate, but we have to look at what is your role in this too. So maybe it was a surprise, this breakup, but what were you not willing to look at during the relationship? What were you avoiding too? What were you aware of? You say you were blindsided, but now that we kind of look at this, maybe there were little hints there and you didn't want to explore it. And that's exactly what we started talking about in therapy was why was I avoiding talking about this sort of elephant in the room that ended up coming out much later. Oh, yes. And I think we can all relate to this, Laurie. You know, it's often inconvenient to want to deal with the things that we kind of see. Sometimes I refer to them in the UK, we call it an amber light. So there's red, amber and green. Here you just say a yellow light. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'll, I'll go, you know, sometimes there are amber signs in a relationship or at work or if there's a problem, but it's not a red light. It's not like red, red, red yet. And we, you know, we love to look away. And I love what you say here. You said, I'm telling Wendell everything I knew about boyfriend's history of avoidance without realizing that what I'm unintentionally illustrating is my avoidance of his avoidance about which apparently I knew quite a bit. (laughs) 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 This is so funny. This book too, it's deep and funny, which is hard. I think that's so hard as a writer. So I just love it from that context too. Um, But you also speak to here, and I I love how you delve into it. You speak about how people come to therapy with presenting problems. And then often it's a therapist's job to get to like the foundational, the core problem. Could you speak to us about the presenting problems? Yeah. So the presenting problem is the thing that the person comes in with. For me, it was a breakup for, you know, anybody, it might be a number of things. And what we find is that the presenting problem is a symptom of some pattern or some blind spot or some way of being in the world that maybe you haven't been aware of. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that stems from this idea that we're all unreliable narrators. And what I yes. mean by that Uh is that we are not trying to mislead. It's that we're telling a story from our perspective, which is very subjective, but we think we're giving a very objective accounting of the situation. This person said this, I said this, they did this, right? The back and forth of that. And you think I'm being really objective here. Here's exactly what happened, but we're emphasizing certain parts of the story. We're minimizing other parts of the story. We're leaving other parts of the story out completely. Mm -hmm. We, We do that outside of our awareness. We want to come across in a way where 
people will understand us. They will empathize with us. Um, we're not trying to be victims. We're just trying to um, help people understand like what our pain is about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think what happens is we lose the other perspectives that are so useful in fleshing out the story. I did a TED talk on this. It was called yeah. How Changing Your Story Can Change Your Life. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a companion workbook that goes with maybe you should talk to someone, which is a toolkit for changing your story to change your life. And it's all about examining these stories that we're carrying around with us and how they affect all of the behaviors and choices that we make on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And when we become aware of these stories and these narratives and the fact that we are unreliable narrators, we can get a much more accurate version of what's going on. Mm. And isn't it interesting that so often these stories are completely unconscious. We're like, I'm doing the right thing. Like I'm showing up, I'm being loyal, I'm paying my bills, (laughs) like I'm I'm living life right. And we often just, it's so uh, invisible to us how another person could be experiencing something or if it doesn't suit the way that we, that the vision that we have, it's so easy to just, uh, to, to lean into just our own ways. And that's where we often seek out help like you. Yes, yes. And we usually yeah. seek out help to get validation that we are right, mm. that we have been injured, that we are the one who has been hurt, that we, you know, that we didn't do the wrong thing, that how could this other person do this? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm trying to understand did. that person. I come to therapy not to understand myself, but to understand why the other person is doing what they're doing. Why are they acting this way with me? Yes. And this is what you did, right? Going to your therapist yeah. with pages of notes and evidence, like your own yes, like evidence. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I, I took, so then, so then I, I, I did the whole, you know, embarrassing thing of, you know, having all those phone calls with him about why, why, why explain mm-hmm. it. I don't understand it. Why? Mm-hmm. And I would take notes because, you know, my background is a, a journalist and I thought yes. I was going to like try to figure this out that way. And mm-hmm. I came in with all these notes and my therapist was like, this is not, it's not helping you. He's actually giving you the answer you just don't like the answer. Mm. I thought that was really profound that I kept trying to get the why of it. And my therapist was like, he told you why and you don't like the answer. And so you keep pushing for a different answer. Mm. Isn't this interesting too, how as the storytellers in our lives, we love to push against thinking that works, <laughs> right? Or thinking that if we push, push, push. I know um, there, there's a friend of mine. She was with a, in a relationship for a long time and he was always very open. He said, I'm never getting married. Like mm-hmm. I'm never getting married. And he, he had a son from a past relationship. He was like, I, I, I didn't marry her mother, his mother. I'm never getting married. But my friend was like, yeah, but he'll change his mind when we move to LA. He'll change his mind. He'll change his mind. And I'm just like, ooh, <laughs> like the, <laughs> the stories. I when, I when I was reading a book, I kept thinking, gosh, how is this showing up in my life? What what can I be avoiding? What is it that maybe I'm not seeking out? And I think that, you know, these uh, the unreliable narrator, I have this circled so many times. It really is. Isn't this kind of our job on earth, Laurie, to become a little bit more conscious. I mean, I think this is the, the purpose of a lifetime. Right. Well, I think it's it's conscious not only of our experiences, but of the experiences we're, of the people we're in relationship with. Mm. And I think so many times we want them. I see this when I see couples all the time that they want the other person to agree with their experience as mm. opposed to being curious about how is your experience of the same event different from mine? Because that's where the connection will come from is, oh, you have this experience. I have this experience. Let's talk about that. As opposed to, you better agree with my experience. My my version of the experience is right. My version is objective. Your version isn't right. Your version is skewed. Mm. 
<laughs> and, and there has to be room for multiple perspectives mm-hmm. without anybody being wrong, that they just are. In your work, because you you clearly, I mean, the people who you you help, they have such. You know, one woman, it was experiencing like a, you know a terminal illness. She you know she dies in the book. You're dealing with a, a man with you know very narcissistic tendencies. Another lady who just who has a deadline for suicide if if her life doesn't change. When you work with different people, and of course through your own experience in this book as the patient yourself. Do you just constantly find the same commonalities again and again, irrespective of the experience, the actual external experience? I think that the commonality is that no no matter what people are presenting with, the ultimate question that they're asking is, how can I love and be loved? Mm. I think every single person is asking that in a different way, even if the presenting problem, like we talked about, looks Mm. completely different. That is the underlying thing. Something is getting in the way. And that includes loving oneself, by the way. Mm-hmm. How can I love and be loved? How can I feel whole? How can I love and be loved? I mean, do you think that even asking that, because we, but we're not ready to to receive that question, right? The, the average person, if they're going through a job loss or if they're going through, I mean, with my background, so I grew up in shelters on welfare. Like my family story was uh, kind of kind of wild. Uh, if I think, you know, if, if love is the only like real truth and loving and being loved is the answer, then therapy, the work that we do, reading books like yours, is that essentially the core of always what we're coming back to? Would you say it, it's a simple and sometimes as complex as that? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and again, the specifics matter. So you, you are dealing with the problem that they came in with, but you want to look at what is getting in the way. And I think that a lot of times what happens is people don't understand what is getting in the way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's where, you know, and that's where people do all kinds of things to protect themselves from understanding that. So this is where we kind of don't want to feel our feelings. Our feelings are really important because they're like a compass. They tell us what we need. They tell us what direction to go in. Mm-hmm. And if we don't use our feelings like a compass, if we try to get rid of them, which we try to do all the time, we try to, you know, too much food, too much wine, um, you know, mm-hmm. drama is a great way to numb your feelings, chaos mm-hmm. in a relationship, drama, you don't have to feel anything, you can just mm-hmm. be in chaos all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but your feelings will come out. So numbness is, you know, we try to numb your feelings. Numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is a, is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. And so what do we do? We do all of these things that are not very, you know, they don't serve us well, but they're, they're ways to get rid of our feelings, but we don't get rid of our feelings because they come out in other ways. They come out in insomnia, they come out in, you know, relationship difficulties. They come out in that mindless scrolling through the internet and you say, what just happened for the last two hours? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's all the ways that we try to numb the feelings, but if we would just sit with the feelings, oh, what is this anxiety about? What is it trying to tell me? What is this sadness about? Where, what do I, what is it telling me is not working in my life? What is this anger about? Do I need to set more boundaries? Is somebody violating a boundary of mine? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what envy, I always say people don't like to feel envy. They feel like that's, it's like not okay. I think envy is great. It tells you something about desire. So I always say, follow your envy. It tells you what you want instead of pushing it down say, oh, maybe there's something that I don't have in my life that I, that I can now take steps to try to get in my life. So I think we need to really sit with what is the thing that is ailing us. And sometimes what we think is ailing us is, is a symptom of the underlying thing that we need to figure out more broadly. And that's where therapy, I think, is very, very effective. 
Reading your book, Laurie, I just kept thinking, wow, I just, I want to go to therapy. (laughs) It's like uh, this incredible experience for the mind. It's, I mean, because there isn't this space really in life where we can have such objective compassion, wise compassion, as you say, from somebody who is invested in, of course, you and you speak so beautifully about the, the relationships you create and the complexities of those two as a therapist, especially with your patient who passed. Uh, but I, I feel as if, I almost don't know how anyone gets by without something like without, I mean, I've had therapy in my life, certainly, and couples therapy, plenty of it. I was divorced in my early twenties too, but I think, uh, how do people get by without it, Laurie? Like how do, I mean, how does the average person survive without knowing that they can, they can question their beliefs. They can question the emotions that they're experiencing or follow them. Like you say, with curiosity and love, do, I mean, do you ever think like, where, where, where would you be without these tools? Like, how, how, how would we get by? Well, you know, I think some people grow up with really good modeling. And so mm. they know how to really look at themselves in a different mm. way and really understand yeah. what's happening. And they can regulate themselves better. And they can understand more about the other person having the space for their perspective and mm-hmm. all of those things. Um, but many of us didn't grow up with that. And I feel like therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who isn't already in your life. Meaning I think everybody has the answers for themselves. I don't think that therapists have the answers for you, mm-hmm. but I do think that we can help you access the answers that you already have. Mm-hmm. And often what happens is there's so much noise out there. So when I say a really good second opinion on your life from someone who isn't already in your life, we don't have all of the, you know, stuff that goes on between people that, you know, they might be saying, Oh, you should do this. Or I think this, but we're looking at someone in a, in a more objective way. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing them differently. We're not seeing them with all those complicated relationships out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helps. And so I think that when there's all that noise that they're bringing in from out there, like, I don't know what I should do about this, or I don't know why this is happening or whatever it is, there's cultural expectations. There's what society says. There's what your family that you grew up with says, there's what the family you have now says, there's mm-hmm. what your friends say, you know, that all of those voices become so much louder than our own place of knowing inside. Mm-hmm. So my job as a therapist is to help people to quiet down all of those really loud voices that aren't theirs. Mm-hmm. And then to listen to the voice that is theirs. And that's where they start to say, oh yeah, okay. So now I'm getting more clear about this. I'm getting more clear about what I want. And you see such powerful examples in this book specifically, because sometimes when I, you know, when I started reading about your patient's journeys, I was like, oh, this is a tricky one. <laughs> like, where's this one going to go? And I'm like, wow, Laurie, like, oof. like you've got your work cut out for you with this gentleman. And then I, I see the evolution through your own patients and your own just, I think, willingness to also be uncomfortable and to, because it's brave, right? It would be easy to go, oh, okay, well, you know, uh, just talk and I'll listen, uh, especially if something is especially uncomfortable because there's so much loss here too. Uh, but the journeys that I'm experiencing, I feel like I'm being healed, learning from these other people's stories whose stories have nothing to do with mine. And And, and that's why, you know, I chose very different people because I think that we can see ourselves reflected in every single one of the patients that I write about, including me as the fifth patient. And, and I think that that's, what's so important is that no no matter what they're dealing with and they have very different personalities, right. From, Mm -hmm. from John, who's very narcissistic at the beginning Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, he, he's, 
very, you know, insulting to me and, and, yeah. and insulting yeah. to other people and thinks he's better than everybody else. And, and, and then to see what's underneath there. And then to see someone, you know, you see other people like, you know, like Charlotte, who, who was this young woman in her twenties, who keeps dating these unavailable men who are going to hurt her. And she thinks it's the men. And it's like, no, there's something going on with you. You know, this, this repetition compulsion of, you know, we have this, this radar for if we haven't healed or process the things that happened when we were younger, we repeat them because we want to master them. That's what repetition compulsion is. So we think, oh, I'm going to find someone like that person, except this time I'm going to win. And then I'm going to heal my childhood trauma. And that's not how it works. And by the way, this is completely outside of our awareness. We don't consciously think that. So yes. Charlotte would always find these guys that would seem very different from her parents. Um, but then once she got to know them, of course, they were very similar and that they would kind of keep her on edge. She never knew where she stood. Mm -hmm. um, it was just very confusing to her. And, and our unconscious has this radar like, oh, you look familiar. Come closer. But mm -hmm. it's completely out of our awareness. Mm -hmm. and, and then, and then it happens. We say, why does this keep happening to me again and again and again? And then, and then when she finally would meet someone who was not like that, she'd be like, yeah, no chemistry really had a great time. We had a three hour dinner. It was great, but yeah, no chemistry because you, because the, the chemistry sometimes, sometimes there's healthy chemistry, but this was unhealthy chemistry was like my unconscious gets activated and lit up when I see someone who feels familiar. Mm-hmm. Isn't it so fascinating how, I mean, this is, you know, when, when you go through these pages, you realize, of course, all of these patterns and you explain these, you know, these therapist terms in such simple ways for any, you know, anyone to understand and maybe identify with. And I think, you know, as I read this, because it's also so entertaining, the way that you share the stories too, like the waiting room stories. Oh my gosh, they were my favorite. Like John's, <laughs> it, it, our lives are colorful and rich and vibrant and different. And we have these internal struggles and we can never identify our own repetition compulsion, which is why, of course, we seek out help. But the goal ultimately to love and be loved. I mean, I, I always just keep coming back to this. And as I you know, as, as I read your stories and I also love your story about having your son, that journey that you share so openly. I think too, when you asked Wendell, your therapist, or you asked him or you, or you wanted to ask him or you roundabout asked him, you said, you know, do you like me? Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit well, about that? Because I think that, that was like, wow. Oh, a therapist is asking another therapist, love. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because as a as a patient, I I really very much, you know, in the beginning, I think sort of had my therapist hat on, like, oh, I yes. know why he's asking that. He wants to know about my attachment styles. Mm -hmm. But I think that once you get past that, you realize that, you know, you're just two humans in a room together. And and study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of our therapy is the relationship with our therapist. It actually matters more than the number of years of experience they have, the modality they use, the theoretical orientation they have. Those things matter. Don't get me wrong. They matter, but not as much as the relationship. And so I think everybody wonders, you know, does my therapist like me? And it's, and, and so it's interesting because it's a place where you talk about everything, including the relationship that's happening in the room. And you don't get to do that the same way outside. And so I was in this roundabout way, sort of uh, trying to ask him <laughs> that question. And, and then he said, 
I, do you have a question for me? <laughs> and I asked him and, and what he said was, and it was so beautiful. He said, I do like you, but not, I think for the reasons that you want me to, meaning I think you want me to find you very sort of smart and funny and all those things that out in the world, we get lots of praise for, mm-hmm. but I like your neshama and your, and it's, it's a word that means your, yeah. your essence, Yeah. right? Like your soul, yeah. your essence, just mm-hmm. your whole essence. And who doesn't want to be liked for their neshama? And I think that's what happens when I was on the other side as a therapist, you can see how much I care about every single one of the people that I am going on this path with. I'm, I'm accompanying them as their witness and their guide. Mm-hmm. And, and it was interesting after I, I published the book. So I got obviously all the kinds of permissions and changed all kinds of things to, to mm-hmm. protect their confidentiality. Mm-hmm. But after the people in the book read the book, every single one of them said in a different conversation, um, I knew how, how much you cared about me when we were doing the work together but reading the book, I could see how much you loved me. And, and it was like, that's what you want. You want your therapist to really, really care about you in that deep human way. It's such a human interaction. And so I think for people who have not experienced therapy, there are so many misconceptions about what it is like, oh, you're going to go to therapy and you're going to download the problem of the week and you're going to leave and you're going to come back and download the problem of the week. And the therapist is going to sit there and say, uh-huh, or, oh, wasn't that hard? No, <laughs> therapy yeah. is a very, it's a very active process. It's very much focused on the present. Mm-hmm. And so that we can then look at how the past informs the present, but how the present informs the future. What are you doing now mm-hmm. to write that next chapter? So now that you have this freedom, Wendell said something to me that I think was, was incredibly important. And I put this in the book. I think at one point I was feeling very trapped and he said to me, you know, you remind me of this cartoon and it's Mm -hmm. of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out, but on the right and the left, it's open, no bars. So why don't we walk around those bars? Why do we sit there shaking the bars saying, you know, I'm trapped. Nothing's going to change. This is my life. This is terrible. And it's because with freedom comes responsibility. Mm -hmm. And if we walk around those bars, we can't blame the things out there anymore. Not that the world isn't a difficult place. And by the way, I always say, you know, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. (laughs) That's one of my favorite sentences in the book, by the way. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, there are difficult people out there. So I'm not saying like, I'm not saying to people, everything is your fault. What I'm saying is you have agency, you have choices. And when you walk around those bars, you are saying, I am responsible for the choices that I make in my life now. Mm-hmm. I get to choose. And that's both a relief and in some sense, a burden, because now you have to take responsibility for yourself. It's good and bad news, right? I but I think ultimately, it's, it's, it's excellent it's, news. I mean, that's, that's how you heal, is you say, I, I am responsible. I have choices, and I'm going to make those choices. I'm going to make good choices for myself. I agree with you. And you say here too, uh, around uh, when it comes to, you know, being stuck in a problem, you, you share that, you know, Wendell says to you, if, if you're staying stuck in something, you know, behind those bars, not going left or right, there's a benefit to you being stuck somehow, which is probably that lack of responsibility required, right? Like the ownership on our part. Would you say that, not to oversimplify here, but would you say that this could be the core of a lot of things that keep us stuck? Like just not wanting to see something, the scariness of that, what it may reveal to us about ourselves that could be ugly or scary. 
Right. Well, that's because it is scary. And I think change Mm -hmm. is hard. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this is why New Year's resolutions fail all the time. Change doesn't happen because you make up your mind and you say, okay, I'm going to do this. And then everything's going to change. What happens is I write about this. There's a chapter in, maybe you should talk to someone called how humans change. And it takes you through the steps and it starts with pre-contemplation where you don't even know that you're thinking about making a change. And then there's contemplation where you're thinking about it, but you're not ready to do anything about it. And we've all been stuck in that stage for a very long time. Like, I know I need to make a change, but yeah, it's okay. It's not that bad. I'm going to just keep things the way they are. Mm -hmm. And then there is um, the preparation where you're preparing to make the change or thinking about what steps you need to, it's kind of a logistical stage. Mm -hmm. And then there's action, which is when you actually make the change, you switch jobs, you leave the relationship, you, um, you know, you, you do something for your health, you do something different. Mm -hmm. Um, And you set a boundary, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, you make Mm -hmm. the change. And Mm -hmm. the, the, People think that that's the end of it. Like, okay, that's it. You made the change. No, the next stage, which is the final stage and the most important stage is called maintenance. And in maintenance, it's how how do we maintain the change? And the big misconception about maintenance is that once you like, let's say that you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave this relationship, but, oh, I called him at three in the morning. So I failed. Forget it. I'll just go back to him. (laughs) Right. So what we do is, or, oh, I was going to eat healthier, but, oh, I ate all that cake. So forget it. I can't, you know, I failed. Mm -hmm. No, it's not like that. You built into maintenance is that you're going to slip back because of course you've had these patterns for a long time. So you need to have a lot of self-compassion in the maintenance phase. It's okay to slip back. And then you just get the support that you need and you get right back on track. And the more you get right back on track, the less you're going to slip back. And the less you slip back, the easier it is to stay on track until the new thing becomes familiar to you. And the reason that change is so hard is that people don't realize they're going through lots of stages, but also it's hard because we, with change comes loss, even a good change. We would sometimes rather be in the unpleasant situation than go into a place of uncertainty where we we don't, we're not familiar with it yet. So with, with change comes loss. The loss is familiarity. We lose the familiar thing. We would rather stay in the thing that we know because it's comfortable, even if it's unpleasant, than go to something that we don't know because it's so terrifying. And so I think that people need to realize that when you're in the maintenance phase, it's going to be scary. Let yourself, it's okay. If you, if you make a mistake, you go back, whatever, just get back on track. It's okay. It's part of the process. Be really, really compassionate with yourself. I feel as if it's almost sometimes impossible for some for someone to practice self-compassion the way that the way that I just observe the way we go through life like I'm a loser I messed up nothing ever works out for me and look I understand right life has its challenges we're all here it's earth school right I I jokingly love to refer to refer to it as earth school often but when you think about it, like self-compassion isn't like the thing, like the, the thing that you see ever. I mean, I would say if I see someone forgive themselves, go, oh, you know, that was, you know, I think I did pretty good at that. Or maybe it wasn't, part, I mean, I, I think I'd have a heart attack because it, it's just the opposite, opposite, opposite. So when it comes to self-compassion, it's coming back to loving and being loved, just, you know, with the self, like how, how do you incorporate it into your life? I'm so glad that you brought that up because this is really interesting. 
I, I see so much how people are so self-critical. There's like another voice in their head that mm-hmm. is always criticizing them. And again, they're not always aware of it. And we weren't born with that voice. So that voice came from somewhere. We don't know, maybe, maybe the culture, maybe your environment, maybe the people who raised you, maybe the environment you're in right now, wherever mm-hmm. it's coming from, it's hard to separate out that voice from your voice. And it becomes internalized in that way. So whenever I'm giving a talk, I will often say to people, you know, from the stage, who is the person, show of hands, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Mm -hmm. Is it your partner? Lots of hands. Is it your parent? Is it your sibling? Is it your best friend? Lots of hands for all of those. But the person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or useful. And those three criteria are so important. So I had this client who was so self-critical. Every week she would come in and she didn't even realize that she was being self-critical. And I said, listen, let's do an experiment. I want you to go home and I want you to listen for this voice that I'm hearing. And I want you to write down everything that voice says over the course of the week and then come back next week and we'll talk about it. And she thought, oh, I'm not going to really hear anything. Well, she comes back the next week. She's written it all down and she starts crying. And she says, I am such a bully to myself. And I had no idea. And some of the things she had written down were she was typing an email and she made a typo. And she said to herself, immediately, the voice in her head went, you're so stupid. Now, first of all, if your friend had made that same typo, you would not think your friend was stupid. You weren't, it's not like you're being nice to your friend. It's that you actually would not think that about your friend. You would think she was typing fast and she made a typo. So why would you say to yourself, I'm so stupid? She was passing herself. She saw a reflection in a, in a mirror and she said, oh, you look terrible today. If her friend looked like that, she would not think my friend looks terrible. She went, oh, my friend looks pretty cute. You know, she looks fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is how we talk to ourselves. So I think it's really important that we ask ourselves when we, to listen to this voice and always ask, is it kind? Is it true? And is it useful? And if it doesn't meet those criteria, change the radio station. Listen to something else because whatever you're listening to is not your voice. It's not the voice you were born with. It's Mm. something external. It's something out there. And you need to get rid of that. Why are you playing that toxic radio station over and over in your head? And don't you think too, Laurie, like the way that our our bodies, the the way that we're just made is we are emotions are like this real feedback, like real-time feedback system telling us how we're speaking, right? Because if I feel heavy, dense, don't want to get out of bed, really insecure, I'm like, there's something I'm believing right now that isn't true. I mean, that, that, yeah. that has to be the case. Like, thank God for our emotions, the negative ones, because they're like, oh, a, a light, come here, like come this way. <laughs> That's how I always think about it. And I'm like, if I feel like shit, truly, especially for a long period, I'm like, there has to be something to examine because it's not by accident. Right. Well, first of all, depression distorts our thoughts and feelings. So I always say to people who are in the midst of of experiencing depression, I say, you are not the best person to talk to you about you right now. Yeah. Because everything that they're thinking about themselves is distorted through the lens of the depression. Mm -hmm. And they can't really see the big picture. Depression narrows our field of vision Mm -hmm. so much so that it becomes tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important when you talk about that. And I also think it's important to remember that in general, you know, maybe not clinical depression, which is something we treat differently, yeah. but mm-hmm. when you are having these emotions, like, oh my gosh, you're feeling really heavy or you're feeling really sad, or you're feeling really anxious. And mm-hmm. it's not an ongoing thing, but it's, it's something that you notice. I always say like feelings are like weather systems. 
They Mm. blow in, they blow out. And when we're in a feeling, it could be really hard to remember that, that this will blow over in a few hours or a day. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you're experiencing right then is just what you're, it's like the weather. It's like, there's a storm right now. It's Mm -hmm. cloudy right now. And then it will be windy and then it will be sunny and then it will go back to a storm again. And that's just sort of the vicissitudes of life. Now, if it's ongoing and it's really interfering with your functioning, you might want to, you know, go see someone and and understand more about that. But I also don't think there's a bar for going to see someone. So I think that, you know, we do something different with our emotional health than we do with our physical health. So with our physical health, we don't say, well, I'm fine. So I never have to go get a checkup at the doctor, or I never have to pay attention to what's going on. Or, you know, we have this, again, going back to the hierarchy of pain. um, You know, we have that with like, if you fall down and you break your arm, you're not going to say, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor and walk around with this, you know, this broken arm because they don't have stage four cancer. We don't compare it to something else. No, no. We do that with our emotional health. We're kind of like, yeah, I'm having trouble in this relationship or I can't really sleep. I don't know why, or I'm feel- I've been feeling sad for a while, or I'm feeling kind of anxious and I don't really know why, but it's not that bad compared to whatever we compare it to. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, because I have this privilege or that privilege, or, you know, I, I can, I have food and I have a roof over my head or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We don't do that. So what happens is people don't tend to come to therapy until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have chest pain, you're probably going to go to the cardiologist before you have a massive heart attack. If yeah. you have emotional pain, you wait until you have the emotional heart attack and then you come to therapy. And that's so backward because first of all, it's harder to treat because now we got to get you back to the point when maybe you were starting to feel the the emotional pain. And then now it's gotten so much worse because you've let it go for a long time. And now you're the the part that's so heartbreaking is you've suffered unnecessarily for weeks or months, or maybe even years. It can take so long for a person to actually get to therapy. It can take years sometimes. Mm -hmm. So they've been suffering in all of these ways when they didn't need to suffer so much and they lost all that time. So I always say to people, if you're thinking, should I see a therapist? That's your inner therapist telling you, yes, I should see a therapist. You don't need to be having an emotional heart attack. You can just be like, hey, I prioritize my emotional health. This matters to me. And I want to see what's going on. Something feels a little bit off. I want to go see what's going on. That's, that's it. You don't need a reason. This comes again, we, I love how it comes back to this self-compassion often. I think too, I'm not sure if it's even just true with women, but I see, you know, we'll put ourselves last and it will be like, well, I've got other people to take care of. And is she okay? Is he okay? And, you know, I'll, I'll be fine over here. Um, another guest on the podcast, Susan Kane, uh, recently said, she's like, I felt bad in a therapy group once because a woman, that woman had a four tissue problem. I just had a two tissue problem. <laughs> like I had problems with my mother, but she like lost her brother. Like it was a, it was like a whole, like uh, the comparison thing is interesting, isn't it? Because it's so unrelated. Like someone else's problem has nothing to do with us. <laughs> and and it's what prevents us from connecting. So we don't feel like we can talk to our friends about these problems that we're having mm-hmm. because we feel like, oh, it's it's so trivial. Yes. You know, we feel like it doesn't really merit discussion or mm-hmm. I'm going to seem like I'm entitled in some way, you know, or, or this problem isn't big enough to, to talk about, or, or I can't talk about this with my friend because she has this problem. And so my problem won't seem big enough. 
You know, like, like it's insensitive of me to talk about my problem with her when really, I think, you know, friends want to be involved in each other's lives. They want to have that emotional intimacy with each other. Mm -hmm. And you find that even if you think your problem is small, that there's something bigger. So, so I even talked about this and maybe you should talk to someone. I wondered before I became a therapist, what would it be like, for example, when I was seeing this young woman who had cancer and then to have the next person come in and say, I, my husband's not having sex with me. Dying of cancer, but I didn't feel that at all because yeah. what is really underlying this person's real emotional up, you know, upheaval around like, am I not lovable is really what it comes down to. Why, why am I feeling like undesirable or not lovable? That's mm-hmm. a real big life crisis type of thing. Um, you know, to feel unloved by the person that you love. Mm-hmm. And we can't talk about it. And he won't talk to me. And I'm being shut out around this. Or, you know, oh, the, the babysitter's stealing from me, right? Like, oh. oh my gosh. And this woman that just came in had cancer. Well, no, because what does that mean? Like this person that I trust with my child, I'm mm-hmm. not sure that I can trust. And what does that mean? And what does this mean for our family? And what does this mean for our child? If I have to get somebody new, my child is going to be heartbroken. And what does that mean in all my feelings of guilt that I work because I need to work? and yet. I need or want to work even, even worse, right. Even worse. Oh, there's a problem with everything. Um, And you, and you want to, you want to do something for yourself too. And then maybe you can't trust the person that you, the person that you care most about your child is, is being charged with. So it's, it's, it's very complicated. What feels like a trivial problem on the surface is actually a very human problem and a very relatable problem when you get down to what it really represents. Mm. I always think that the goal that we, or the goal that I have in mind when I want to, you know, receive some help or offer help is like the soothing, like whatever's going to bring a little bit of relief. And I think that, you know, even in the example of the, you know, the babysitters um, stealing money, the nanny stealing money. I mean, that, that would just represent that the world is scary. Like the person, like you said, you trust, like your, your heart is in a human form outside of your body, your child. And the person who takes care of that child is like stealing your money. I mean, right. And then what does it mean? you know, what else can you not trust? Right. So, yeah. so the, the trust is broken mm-hmm. and, yep. and, and how can you know the person is telling you the truth about all kinds of things related to your child? Mm. So, no. so I think that it's really important that we're able to talk to each other. So the title of the book, maybe you should talk to someone is yes. And nod to, you know, maybe you should talk to a therapist, but, but it's also, maybe we need to talk more to each other. Mm-hmm. So it isn't, everybody needs to go to therapy. I I would encourage people if they want to go to therapy to do that for sure. But I think we also, we feel so alone and isolated in what we're going through because we don't know other people are going through similar things because we're so afraid to talk about it with each other. Mm. And so it looks like if you just look on Instagram and we know intellectually, by the way, that social media is not a real representation of people's lives. Mm -hmm. But I think we don't know what a real representation of people's lives is because we aren't actually talking about it with one another. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a real shame. It, it really prevents this kind of deep connection that I think helps us get through this really challenging time in the world. I I agree, Laurie. And sometimes I feel like 
I'd love your opinion on this because sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit strange because I love to be open about things that are some with people who I don't even know that well, even if it's like a little bit uncomfortable. So as an example, recently we went to dinner with another couple and I mean, lovely couple, of course, you know, we, we like them. We want to be friends with them. Uh, and I was like, sorry, we're late. We had a fight on <laughs> Like that's the real reason. And I obviously don't go into details. I mean, unless they ask, in which case I would. Um, But I just think, isn't it sometimes, I think some, I like to be the person who's willing to say something first, to throw something out there, or I'll often offer something very unglamorous about my past or my experience, because I know that we don't connect through our Saint-Tropez vacations when we speak about those or our, um, you know, how, how amazing our kid is doing or like those things are wonderful too, to celebrate. But sometimes I think, well, I like to just offer something that's you know, that is just real. And maybe that someone doesn't have the exact same experience, but all couples fight, all kids have problems. All, all all of us have different challenges at work. Uh, I always think that, you know, especially, I'm not sure if it's specific to the US more, but I find as if it it takes a long time in friendships to get there, or it can take years and years and years. And I just want to get there quickly. (laughs) I just want (laughs) to like, like, let's just do it. You know, like tell, tell tell me about your life. Like, give me, give me all sides of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think this, this speaks to vulnerability. And I think that so many times we don't know what vulnerability is. So when we see so often you'll see on social media, someone will say, you know, I'm just telling all of you guys, I'm being really vulnerable here and let me share oh. this with you. And I feel like on the one hand, I'm glad people are talking about things because people need to hear that, you know, mm-hmm. people are human. But on the other hand, that's not, in in my opinion, real vulnerability because mm-hmm. you don't have to sit face to face with the people who are reading your post. Mm-hmm. And yes, they're going to put all, you know, they're going to put lots of like validation and likes and whatever. But I think real vulnerability is when you have real stakes in something like mm-hmm. I'm going to open up to this person in the flesh and blood right here. If you're sitting on the couch next to me mm-hmm. and I'm going to tell them something that feels very tender to me mm-hmm. about maybe it's about me. Maybe it's about our relationship. Mm-hmm. And that is very risky. And that's real vulnerability, but it's also what brings real connection, not, not social media connection, real connection. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that takes an incredible amount of courage. Mm-hmm. And that's where I want people to be vulnerable is, can you be vulnerable with the people in your life that matter to you, with mm-hmm. those relationships? And I think you have to choose your audience well. I always say to people, you can't just willy-nilly be vulnerable with people. You right. have to, you know, or they'll say like, right. oh, I did that, but it didn't go well. <laughs> and so, so I want to say is choose your audience. Well, there yeah. are people that are going to be a good audience for this. And there are people who are not, and you have to learn that about the people in your life. And maybe the people who are not serve a different role in your life. Like they're the person you like to like go on hikes with or go to movies with or whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. or collaborate professionally with, but mm-hmm. there are other people that, that really you can be audiences for each other where you can really be present and being a good audience means being present. Do you know how to listen? Does the other person know how to listen and listening? Isn't we make this mistake all the time where we think, um, you know, Oh, I'm going to give this person what I would want in this moment, instead of asking, how can I be helpful to you? How can I be here for you in this Mm. moment? What would happen if we asked that? How can I be here for you? I want to be here for you. How can I be here for you in this moment? They might say, I just want to vent right now. I don't want your thoughts about this. I don't want a solution. I just want to vent. Okay, great. It might, even though you're thinking like, oh my God, here's what you need to do. (laughs) Just just want to vent. Because maybe like 
a week later, they might come back and say, you know, that thing that we talked about, I've been thinking about, and I actually want to now have a conversation where we kind of brainstorm about like what I should do about this, or maybe I'm not seeing something about this. Can you help me with that? Mm -hmm. But in that moment, they want to vet, or maybe they're like, I just want to hug right now and then I'll feel better. And then the thing will pass. We had this bad day at work and this thing happened or had this bad moment with my partner, but, but I just want to hug right now. And I know I'll work it out. And, or maybe they're saying, I really need another opinion on this. I really want to hear your thoughts. I trust you with this. I really want to hear, what do you think about this? Can you gently help me hear your thoughts? So everybody is different about what they want. And also in that moment in therapy, you know, we do this all the time as therapists, it's always timing and dosage. Like when do we help them to see something and how much do we deliver in that, in that one session and in that Mm. one moment? Like truly like Laurie reading this book, I have such, I mean, I've always had such respect for your work, but the way that, the way that you see people, the way that you care, the way that, I mean, I feel like anyone who reads this book too, is going to be just a better friend. Like they're going to be more connected to others, to themselves. They'll see because we're so quick to judge that person's wrong. They're behaving badly. They're being rude. Like the way that the humanity that you bring to this, I mean, I was deeply moved with it. And I mean, to just, I mean, I could keep you. <laughs> You're a very well, busy lady. I know. <laughs> I, I, mean, I hope that, I hope that what people will take from it is more self-awareness is more awareness of their own blind spots of their own yeah. patterns. I think it's so much easier to see somebody else enact a pattern that's similar to yours and recognize yourself in that and say to yourself, oh yeah, I do that too. Or I do a version of that as opposed to somebody saying to you, you know, you have this pattern and let me tell you about it. We get really defensive. Yes. But when you can see yourself mirrored in somebody else's experience in that way, then the awareness is the first step. You say, oh, wow, maybe I do need to look at that without all the shame, without the judgment, without the blame, again, with compassion. So I think it's about self-awareness that you will learn a lot about yourself from reading. Maybe you should talk to someone and you will learn a lot about the people in your life, whether that's family members or friends or romantic partners, you will learn a lot about them and have more compassion for them too. And so I want people to walk away with self-awareness and then also I think self-compassion. I mean, I, I I would dare anyone not to become more self-aware after reading this book. I think the insights, the examples, the truths, and it's raw, real material in here. We're dealing with like the the, the topics shared in here are the hardest that humans deal with, like the like the hardest. And but I think what what makes it what makes it really relatable, and I think that that's why we can see ourselves is because of the humor. Because I think yeah. that human beings are ridiculous, and I have that. That's how I approach it as <laughs> as a therapist. That I know that there's this large gap so often with all of us between what we intend and what we actually do, or what we want and the ways we prevent ourselves from getting it, or the ways we intend to have a conversation in the way we actually have a conversation or the ways that we think we're coming across and the ways that we actually come across. And I think we're just, you know, human beings are ridiculous. And if we can laugh at ourselves and others, not, not in, I don't mean that we're laughing at them. I think, I think we're more laughing with them. That we're laughing at at our shared humanity, at how much there's so much humor in in the mistakes that we make and the ways that we kind of, you know, fall in the same hole over and over and over again until we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think you can see I'm I'm very self-deprecating in the book about myself and all of the ways that I can't see my own issues. And I think that, you know, there's so much humor in the ways that I work with my patients in the room that we laugh a lot in the therapy room, too. And I think people don't realize that. And I want them to see that as well. Laurie, what's next for you? Of course, like this book, everyone needs to read it. Available everywhere books are sold. Is there anywhere else people should check you out? Just lauriegottlieb.com? 
Yeah. So I um, season three of the Dear Therapist podcast just launched. And so we do actual sessions on there mm-hmm. and people get homework and then they have a week to do the homework and we hear actually how the session went. So you can see how even after one session, mm-hmm. people can make real shifts in their lives, even if they've been stuck for a long time. And so uh, that's Dear Therapist. And then I write the Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, they can watch my Ted talk, of course, and they can get mm-hmm. the workbook to maybe you should talk to someone, which is called a, a toolkit for changing your story and changing your life. And, um, I'm writing a new book, which I am very excited about. So, um, busy you. with all of that. Oh, okay. Lori, I have a quick rapid seven question round, that I'd love to finish on if okay. that's okay with you. <laughs> all right. I'll do my best. <laughs> what is your favorite word for therapist? My favorite word for therapist. Oh, there are lots of kind of nicknames, aren't there? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I would say what what Irv Yalom, who's a, who's a very famous uh, psychiatrist, have called called people fellow travelers. I think we're all fellow travelers. Fellow. Oh my god, that makes me emotional. Fellow travelers. Um, when people come across you in your work, how do you want them to feel? I want them to feel seen. Uh, in one word, how would someone who knew you as a kid describe you? Quirky. Quirky. Uh, <laughs> uh, number four here. What's one thing you really want to do that you haven't done yet? Ooh, I don't know because I feel like I'm doing all the things that I want to be doing. That's a really hard one. That's a wonderful answer though. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm doing them all. Nothing yeah. even, like wildly random. You don't want to go like go bungee jumping in New Zealand. <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be like the biggest nightmare. No. <laughs> For me too. <laughs> you do not want me. You do not want me like flying through the air. The, the, the screaming, the, the screaming of terror would resound throughout the world. <laughs> It's not on my bucket list. Not on your bucket list. Okay. No. Um, favorite city. Favorite city. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I, I, I give horrible answers to this because there, like, I you could put me in any city and I would be fascinated by it. I, I'm oh. so curious about anywhere I am that I would just want to explore it. These are actually very good answers. <laughs> like, oh, 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 I like all cities. Um, oh, what would your last meal be? Oh, okay. This one I know. <laughs> it would be steak. It would be like a, a really, really delicious steak. I, I'm, I, I, there are so many people who do not understand why I eat red meat. Mm. I do. I love steak. Mm, and like I, a ribeye, a ribeye. Unashamedly <laughs> say that would oh. be my last meal. <laughs> and any type of steak or just all steak? Filet mignon. <gasps> Filet mignon. Delish. And then Finally, for the Let It Be Easy podcast, what's one thing that you do consistently that allows your life to be easier? Mm, Get enough sleep. Oh, aren't you a different woman after a good night's sleep? Yes. 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 Sleep is everything. Sleep is like, it's it's the reset. It's, Mm. it's, It's the thing I can't function if I don't have enough sleep. Mm. So I have to protect my sleep. Like, you know, I think people talk about it like, oh, well, it's okay if I stay up an extra hour, or I stay up an extra two hours. And 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 I say to people, what were you doing in those extra, that extra, like, oh, I was on Instagram or oh, I was answering emails or I was watching a TV show, which is fine. Like I I I do all of those things. Um, but but if you don't protect your sleep, you're going to notice it and it it accumulates over time. Mm. 
So it's really important to protect your sleep for me. I, I agree. And I haven't, no one's actually said that yet. And I'm like, oh, sleep, you're right. It affects everything. And Laurie, truly your wisdom, your words, your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being with us. Oh, my oh thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what a joy. And I hope we'll do this again sometime in the future. Absolutely. I would love that. <laughs> so much love. Take care. If you like this episode, you'll love my free workshop called Become Your Own Life Coach. Head on over to becomeyourownlifecoach.com now, and I'll teach you how to coach yourself through any of life's problems. I'll see you there.